Hey everyone. In the last episode, I mentioned that Murder Etc. is taking a very brief production break just to handle some of the information that's been coming in since we started two months ago. We're planning to pick up the story again on April 30th, but the break's a good opportunity to give you some insight into some of the people who've been contributing their voices to Murder Etc. I've had a lot of people ask me how Andy Etheridge and I came to know each other. And if you've been listening to the first few episodes of this show, you know you've heard Andy in a lot of them. That's not really how he or I planned this. It just sort of happened. He's not a cop. He's not a criminal. He's not a journalist. More than anything, he's a citizen of Greenville, which I found made his voice a vital part of telling this story. So I thought I'd let him tell you a little bit about himself. He's a naturally curious guy who ended up letting his curiosity lead him right into the middle of one of this community's most tragic stories. Well, my name is Andy Etheridge. I've lived in Greenville since I was six years old. You know, work currently in, a, in the software industry, but, you know, bounced around. I fulfilled my dream of being a railroad conductor and had a lot of downtime, and that's when a lot of this took hold. I was sitting in, I'd be sitting in hotel rooms in Atlanta, Georgia, and have nothing but a computer and a, a subscription to newspapers.com. And what else do you do, you know? But, you know, spend all your time digging through newspaper articles, but pretty much amateur historian. I think is the phrase that I use whenever people would ask me, hey, what are you what are you doing with this? What why are you into this? And I'm an amateur historian. And that was my major in college, you know, I've really just always loved a good story. And I think that's what this is, a story with a very sad part of it. Uh I mean for the most part it's fascinating. You're dealing with the Dixie Mafia and just massive corruption and small town politics and everything else. And then you pause for a minute and you think, wait a minute, there's a part of this story that's just tra two parts that are just tragic. I grew up in the upstate of South Carolina. There, there was a story from my family's history from the turn of the century. And it involved my great, great grandfather. And he was a poll manager at a place called the Phoenix Crossroads. And his job was to man the polls. And this is right at the tail end of Reconstruction. Things are very, very tense in Southern Greenwood County. And a man named James Talbert, he comes up with what's referred to as a wagon load of black people to register. The story that's told is my great-great-grandfather protested when Talbert had set up a alternate um, site and was collecting votes, you know, right across from where my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was. And basically what happened was my great-grandfather protested and he was killed. And that's where the story gets murky. Uh, it was reported all the way to like New York papers because what ensued was a race riot. The, there was a mob that basically rounded up and sought justice in the name of my great-great-grandfather. And this was one of those stories when I'm a little kid moving forward almost a century later that you're like, man, that is fascinating. But to me, the fascinating part is the way the story is told and how it softens a little bit with each generation. There is a pamphlet that from where my great-grandfather ran for sheriff and it says gave his 
life in defense of his race. And that to me was just hit home to the racial and to the to the what this was. It was racism. It's pure and simple. It's just that's exactly what it is. And the way the story's told tells you to what extent the hint of racism is pulled out. And so by the time it always gets to me, it's just a matter, it's just a, a simple political Republicans versus Democrats. There's the, the the issue of race has been pulled out of it. And it, that was the core of it. Call it white guilt, call, call it what you want, but it starts me to really kind of self-examination to see how much racism have I actually seen? You start to think about it and, and you, you realize that there's a little more there the other side of it is given in as much the same way that you see people talk about Eric Gottlieb. Well, it's, it's just it's just people that aren't from around here. They're just trying to stir it up. They don't know what they don't they don't know about how we do things here. And but that's just kind of kind of what what it was for me it was this, and it was a slow transformation. And I, and I don't want you to think that prior to two thousand I was a racist, but it, I, I didn't view things. Because there's no one thing that occurred in my life, but this slow transformation. And move forward many, many years later, and I think one of the things that really had an impact on me was the, the Charleston shooter. And I start to see, man, there's people out there that hate, want to kill, and in the name of a, a flag or, or whatever it is. And, and it, those people are racist, but the other thing that that people really don't see is the hint of racism um what is it in the community what it's you know you got people got hoods on their head and they're burning crosses oh yeah those people are racist there's no doubt about that but what about the people that just kind of oh yeah that was a crazy time things were much different in my you know that you get these little pitches and it, it just doesn't it doesn't uh it's not a reasonable argument, in my opinion. It's, it's not, it doesn't clean the slate. I didn't know Andy back then, but almost a decade ago, Andy stumbled across some writing I'd done on a personal blog. And I, and I read what was on your blog. And for the longest time, you, if you did a Google search of Charles Wakefield, all you got was yours. And that's it. Right at the top. I remember thinking, man, this Brad Willis guy, he's, he's on to this. And, and you kind of alluded to the fact that this is a major story. This is a very complex, huge story that will come out at some point in time. So I just kind of sat back and me as this young gung-ho amateur historian, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm trying to chase down these leads. And <laughs> I've just gotten out of college at the time. And it's just, it was kind of a, just a hobby to me, I guess, if nothing else. And I guess when I really, really started digging into it is when I was on the railroad and I learned very quickly what a furlough is. And a furlough on the railroad is basically where they tell you, you have no job next week, but you haven't lost your job. So you end up with these weeks at a time where you have not lost your job, but there's nothing for you to do. And, it, and then it comes around again. And so I was living in, in Abbeville, South Carolina. I thought, man, Abbeville's a great place for me to dig through this and still not be right in the middle of Greenville, the belly of the, the the beast of the story. So I really started kind of burning up the highway back and forth. Really, and at that time, I said I actually ventured out to the to the courthouse, and I said, "Man, 
Let's, what do they got? And I never found the big book you speak of. And to this day, I, I don't. I don't think they want me to find the big book because just well, one, it wouldn't matter now. I don't have time to look at it. But at the time, I did have a lot of time, and and that's when I really started. And then I was going back and forth and studying microfilm, reading up on anything, and it doesn't take long before you're you're digging around Charles Wakefield. I knew that at some point I would have to get in contact with Charles Wakefield. Uh, and I kind of hunted around and, and tried to get in touch with Charles Wakefield. And, he, and like you've said now, Charles Charles doesn't, he lays very, very low. Plus, I had no idea what I was going to tell this man, you know, who has been in prison the majority of his adult life. Where in the, how's this 30-something-year-old railroad conductor slash salesman slash pizza delivery guy, what does he know about anything? I had no clue what I was going to do. You can't give it up. You want other people to know about this, but the people closest you get tired of hearing it. And so that was the biggest, I think, I think for me and you was, hey, here's someone that I can theorize with who doesn't isn't going to tell me to shut up and quit talking about a murder from 1975. A lot like Andy found me, I found him. Several years ago, before all the Freedom of Information Act requests and deep dives into big books of criminals at the courthouse, I started my research in a news database called newspapers.com. One day I realized there was somebody else clipping the same Looper murder articles as me. I'd already been told to watch my back and drop this story before I ran afoul of the people who didn't want me to tell it. Now there's like uh, this dual paranoia. Like, number one, is there somebody like watching what I do? And then my second paranoia is just one as a journalist. I'm going to get scooped. There's somebody else working on this damn thing. Um, turns out it's you. Yeah. And people would ask me, friends, and, and then, what are you doing with this? And what are you going to do with it? So I have no clue what I will ever do with this. But I felt very passionately that this was a story the town needed to hear. And mainly because there's two tragedies to this. A law enforcement officer was killed. It's unsolved. And a man went to prison to die. For the same crime, there's two tragedies, and to me, that's how the town as a whole can just kind of internalize that and say, "Well, it's just yeah, that's that was a crazy time back." Then. You hear that? That was a that was a crazy time back then, and you just kind of write it off. And it seems that people are just so comfortable in the explanation that yeah, there might be something to that. They're fine to leave it right there. And, and I think that that was what I wanted to do was, was get the story out somehow. And, I, you know, and then it took a little time, but, you know, I met you, I met you and, and, and kind of saw, man, this guy's, this guy's way farther along than newspapers.com. <laughs> and, and I was able to see, wait, there's, he's really got a hold of this thing. The Internet has done a lot to connect lovers, friends, and family. And in this case, it ended up connecting a couple of men obsessed with a murder case that happened four decades ago. The people that, that like to question the murder, but not question how is it that this story has stayed down so long, are missing the, the, the tinge of racism that is there. Um, and it, it's just, it's hard not to see, for me. How, how do your views go over at holiday dinners? Well, for the most part, most of my family is, is well, they don't vote the way I do. <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's a lot more people like me, honestly. I, th I think there is a lot more people 
there's there's more people that are open-minded, but to be open-minded, you got to kind of look back at the past. And that is how Andy and I ended up spending so much time in the cab of a pickup truck. You went right up to Poe Mill. <laughs> On a funny side note, I'll tell you, tell you quickly the story of my run-in at Poe. When I was about six, seven years old, I was really into model trains, which I guess led me to be in the to go to work for the railroad. But my grandfather came up here, and we went to a model train um club the the greenville model train club and they met on like tuesday nights at the old poe mill office building and i distinctly remember uh leaving that meeting and being this seven-year-old in the room with a bunch of you know 60 year old men and them making the joke either to me or my grandfather uh well, y'all are welcome anytime on Tuesday night, but don't come on Thursday night. That's when the clan meets. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it, it, it didn't ever occur to me until much later. Was he being serious or not? I, I still to this day don't know. Trading theories, stories, and occasional epiphanies that would guide our work. A guy stops a cop in the middle of the street over in West Greenville and says, if you're looking for the car that was involved. If you're looking for the car that, you know, the hitman was driving, it's a red over white car and it's at Adams Auto Parts right now. It's a, uh, it's a straight shot. Yeah. Straight shot from the scene of the crime. One of the coolest things about this story, if there's anything cool about a murder case, is the description of the cars. Uh, no. There were some pretty cool cars in the mid-70s, especially in the, in the life of crime. This entire area is liquor houses. I mean, I mean, Perry Avenue, right this direction, it's liquor house, liquor house, liquor house, liquor house. Perry Avenue is actually, it's interesting. It's, it's named after Governor Benjamin Perry. And the road used to, looking directly ahead, or we'll get to 123, it was a clear intersection. There's uh, one of those cool 70s cars. So red over white. Holy shit. Holy shit. It is red over white. <laughs> Son of a bitch. That's <laughs> not <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> that was... Of course. Hey. People are just going to think we're making shit up. <laughs> <laughs> it's corroborated. It was a sweet red over white American sedan from the mid-70s. Suspicious cars, convenient escape routes, junkyard hideouts. They're all a lot to take in, and it's part of what's coming up when Murder Etc. returns April 30th. <laughs>